0: Let's turn to Matthew 18, if you'd like to go there with me. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 in order to get the context clear in our minds. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted And become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Nevertheless, woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, Tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye, having two eyes, than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has 100 sheep, And one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. In this way, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Father, help us to Understand your word this morning by your spirit, whom you have given to us, who dwells within us. If anyone here does not know you, we ask that your spirit would do the work of persuading and convicting, granting faith and repentance and life. And we submit ourselves to your word now as we turn our thoughts to you away from the the outside world and the concerns that we have. And there are some things weighing heavy on hearts this morning. But we need to be grounded in you. And so allow us to pause the other concerns and give you and your word our attention. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Matthew begins, Jesus' disciples come to him and ask who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Gospels of Mark and Luke uh, talk about this event. They make it clear, if you read those, that it was a secret argument among the twelve. And they're not talking about just who is the greatest. Would it be Moses? Would it be David? They're asking which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom, which you know if you and i were going to sit and have a discussion about who the greatest believer was at least we should be talking about the whole range of christian history but to say which one of which one you or me is the greatest christian it's like but you've just narrowed it down quite a bit they didn't hesitate to do that well jesus calls a child over and sets him among them And says that sinners must be converted and have a childlike relationship with God the Father, trusting, loving, and obedient. And it's that person who has the great, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That requires conversion. It requires regeneration. Jesus is not saying children are the possessors of the kingdom of heaven. He's saying We have to be converted so that we become like children. And that language is clear as he moves through. He goes on to say that the world is a dangerous place for his children. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. It is inevitable that there will be temptations to sin. We cannot escape them. But there is a special judgment for those who deliberately set out to entice his children and to tempt his children to sin, Jesus says it is better that they be drowned in a horrible way before they face eternal judgment than to tempt his children to sin and then face eternal judgment. There's going to be a, an emphasized and intensified judgment on those who harm his children. Nothing should hinder holiness, not even our own earthly well-being. Physical, emotional, mental, however you want to measure it, nothing is worth the holiness of God. At the same time, no earthly measures will make us holy. As I said last week, point one is, Jesus did not mean that we should start cutting off body parts in order to be holy. Point two is, point one is not good news. If being saved eternally simply required the amputation of a little finger, it'd be so easy being saved really requires the acknowledgement that sin so infuses us that only death can satisfy it. And death has the unfortunate side effect of preventing us from living. And so we need a way to die while we remain alive. And that we have in the Lord Jesus. Then we reach our verses this morning. See to it that you do not despise any of these little ones. Uh, so the theme of the christian as a little child takes time christian maturity spiritual maturity takes time from the moment of conversion all the way to our physical death is a is an unending time of sanctification and some of that can be really hard i would love to be 8 again i have incredible memories of when i was 8 I just would love to be 8 again. I would love to be 19 and newly married again and not do some of the stupid things I've done in 41 years. But I wouldn't be 14 again for all the money in the world. Those those early teen years are miserable. Gosh, they're just they're just so hard. I feel sorry for my own grandkids. They got to go through that. Here's the problem. You can't get from 8 to 19 without passing through 14. So you can't go from justification to glorification without going through sanctification. And it's hard, and it's messy, and it takes time. And so Jesus tells his disciples now, you must not despise those who have need of growth. You must not despise those who are immature, who are weak, who are new. In spiritual life. He begins by giving them a caution. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, they wanted an organizational chart. Which one of us is the greatest? There was a point where the mother of James and John went to Jesus. And she said, grant to my sons that they may sit on your right and your left hand in the kingdom. In other words, let's get out the organizational chart and start filling it in now. That's still their mindset as he's speaking. We've had two weeks now to to be studying and meditating and thinking on what he has said since 18 verse 1. It was still part of the conversation. Those words have not yet begun to register with them. They're still thinking of the kingdom of God as a matter of position and pecking order. And that's a dangerous place to be. Now, they're in a unique position. They're in a privileged position. They'd been chosen by the Father. They'd been given to the Son. The first half of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 is about these men. And he acknowledges that they belong to the Father and they've been given to them. They don't have any reason to be proud, but they were. And that pride was a bad thing. It could only lead to sinful thinking about themselves and others. It could only lead to high thinking about themselves and low thinking about others. That pride could only lead them to be jealous of those who they thought were above them and contempt to those that they thought were beneath them. The other thing that we've got to remember here is that time is running out. In six months or less, Jesus would be crucified and buried and raised. And that means in about seven months, these men would be responsible for caring for 3,000 brand new Christians. They're not ready. They're still thinking greatness in the kingdom is a matter of privilege and position and which one of us is the greatest. And so they've got to abandon those earthly ideas. Maybe they're thinking in terms of Elisha and Elijah. Elijah the prophet had a young protege, Elisha. When Elijah is caught up, his mantle, that is his authority and power, falls upon Elisha. And Elisha just carries on in the spirit of Elijah. But nobody carries on in the spirit of Christ. Nobody succeeds him. The disciples are not his successors. They're his servants. Jesus ascends to heaven and he continues his ministry. He continues to rule. He doesn't give up anything. He doesn't delegate a thing. And so they are never to view any believer as beneath them. They are never to view any believer, no matter how new, how low, how immature, how weak, how frail, as second class. They are not to despise any of them. He gives them two reasons for this. The first is in verse 10, For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is a mysterious phrase, and we don't have enough information in Scripture to interpret it. We simply don't. There are a lot of commentators who say, oh, these are guardian angels. Well, guardian angels are an invented doctrine. They're not found in scripture. People took a couple of references to angels and their relationships to to people, like at the end of Hebrews 1, they are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who inherit eternal life and said, oh, each one of us has an angel assigned. Nothing in scripture says that. Another commentator that I read said, these are not uh, angels as at all in the sense that we think of angels they are the spirits of those who have died and gone to heaven so in the sense of uh, hebrews chapter 12 the great cloud of witnesses that kind of an idea but how does that connect yesterday i as i was kind of thinking about this i was talking to linda about it and i started thinking about the academy awards See, if you watch the Academy Awards, I know some of you do. You don't have to admit it, but some of you do. If you watch, you notice that when they show the crowd, there is never an empty seat. Well, that's because whenever somebody gets up to go to the bathroom or gets up to go perform or gets up to accept a reward, somebody else dressed nice takes their place. So they never show an empty seat. So it it occurred to me yesterday, what if each one of us has in heaven an angelic placeholder before the Father? They're beholding the face of the Father. But when you die and go to be with the Lord, they'll yield up their place and you'll take that place. But that's just guesswork. That's just speculation. We're not told. But Jesus considers it to be so serious that he says you are not to despise one of these little ones for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my father who is in heaven. I don't know what the relation is between that angel and you or me as a believer, but Jesus says it's such an important reason that you must not despise somebody. Maybe it's simply a matter of saying there's not more angels for some and fewer angels for others. It's not archangels for some and peon angels for others? They're the same. They're the same. And so you don't dare despise another believer, no matter how lowly, immature, or weak they are. For there is an angel in heaven that some has some connection to them that is beholding the face of God. There's a, a more important reason that Jesus gives us and that is his purpose it's found in Matthew 18:11 now Matthew 18:11 is a is a variant If you have a New American Standard, you'll see it in your text in brackets. If you have a Legacy Standard, as I do, it's in brackets. If you have a King James or New King James, you'll see it there in the text, probably with a footnote that says this verse is not found in the earliest manuscripts. If you have an English Standard Version, a Holman, a Christian Standard, an NIV, you won't see it at all. You'll just see a footnote. Jesus did not speak these words at this time. The copyist in the 5th century that introduced it took it out of Luke chapter 19. For the Son came to seek and save that which is lost. He felt that that was a reason why we must not despise anybody that he has saved. Jesus did not say it here. But those words are true. Those words are true. No one should despise anybody anybody that jesus came to save his purpose in coming was to save sinners we heard as justin read this morning from the legacy standard or from the the legacy standard from the london baptist confession that reference to romans eight twenty eight and, and 29 Because of those whom he foreknew, he he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the same ones God foreknew in eternity past were predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And the glorification is so certain that it's spoken of in past tense. Even though nobody has yet been glorified. Glorified requires resurrection. No Christian has yet been resurrected. There are many who have not yet been called because they don't they're not alive yet. There are others who have not been called even though they've been born because it has simply not been time for the Lord to redeem them. And yet it's past tense, justified the same, its past tense. It's the same ones with each action. No one is added along the way. No one is lost along the way. The Father starts with the specific group in mind, and he knows their names. And each step of the the process of salvation includes the very same group. And Jesus came to fulfill the crucial part of that, which was to atone for them. Those whom the Father foreknew, the Son atoned for, and the Spirit regenerates. And Jesus says, don't you dare despise somebody that I atone for. That is not your place. It's possible that those who despise the ones he atones for, despise the atonement itself. And they're simply not thinking about his glory and his grace. Jesus' purpose For coming to earth was so important that he illustrates it with a parable in verses 12 and 13. And he begins with the words, what do you think? Now, this is not rhetorical. He wants them to think. He wants them to reason. Consider this. Ponder this. Here's the parable. A man has a hundred sheep. Got that in your head? Man's got a hundred sheep. And one of them goes astray does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, he's speaking about within the parable as it begins he's speaking about a human shepherd with actual sheep and that sheep has gone gone off it could have been stolen and he'll never find it it could have fallen off the mountain and he'll never find it it could have been taken by a predator and he'll never find it but if he does find it doesn't he rejoice over it in a way he didn't rejoice over the 99 that is a rhetorical question yes he does The shepherd with those hundred sheep and one of them goes straying doesn't say to himself, well, I've still got 99, that's pretty good. That's a valuable animal. And he goes looking. Every time I've ever heard this preached, it's been used to exhort the church to evangelism. As though what Jesus said was, if any man has 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not send the 99? But he doesn't send the 99. He's not talking about 99 believers going in search of one unbeliever. He's talking about those are his. He's been talking about stumbling. When the Son of Man looks at his flock and knows that one of his children have stumbled into sin, does he abandon that child? No. He goes searching. He goes looking. He goes to restore The triune God says, Well, doesn't say, Well, I've got plenty of believers left. I'll just, Well, oh well. Can't win them all. No, he can win them all. Verse 14 makes that clear. In this way, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. My will gets frustrated all the time. All the time. Lynn and I were able to get a a new washing, not a washing machine, a new dishwasher on Friday. Circumstances worked out. It was a blessing for us. I went to install it. How hard can it be to install a dishwasher? I mean, you got water in, you got water out, you got power. How hard can it be? Well, when the power plug is four feet and the distance to the outlet is eight feet. Menards, 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 Menards. I just, it's like a revolving door at Menards because my will can be frustrated. And we might be tempted to think of God's will of being like our will only bigger, but it can be frustrated. And and the rolling stone song applies to God too. You don't always you can't always get what you want. God always gets what he what he wants. He never loses. It's hard for that because there are people who are sent into judgment. And we need to understand the totality of scripture and the majesty of his glory to be able to even begin to comprehend that. But biblically, we have to begin with the idea that God never loses. The sinful nature of the disciples would cause them to look at a straying, stumbling believer and hold them in contempt. We're going to hear Peter do that before too long in Matthew. Even if all of these other ones betray you, I will never betray you. He held the other ones in contempt. I'm better than them. I'm smarter than them. I'm more faithful than them. Meanwhile, John, who refuses to mention himself by name in his own gospel, is the only one of the disciples at Calvary. The only one. The quiet one. And so the disciples have to learn not to do this. In seven months, 3,000 newborn believers are going to be placed into their hands to shepherd. They can't despise them because they're young. They can't despise them because they don't know everything. They need to teach them. There's no hierarchy of value in the kingdom. If you're elect, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, then you're equally elect, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. There's no differing levels. And Jesus remains fully committed to carrying out the will of the Father. His faithfulness is not shaken by our weakness or by our stumbling. He's divinely wrathful toward those who would entice us to sin and tempt us to sin, and he is divinely joyful every time we repent, every time we we repent. Some of you, like me, have had the experience of having a particular sin that just chases you all the time. And you just get starting to think that every time you go to the Lord and confess and repent, he's, he's shrugging, he's shaking his head, yeah, you do this all the time. And he's, he's getting as bored with it as you are. He's getting as tired of hearing you repent as you are of of repenting. He's getting to the point where you you, you just think, I just don't even want to go see him right now. Because this happened yesterday and the day before and last week and last month and last year. I got to tell you, it may take death to shake that sin loose. But we make a mistake if we don't think he doesn't rejoice when we come back. Every time, like it's the first time. Just like it's the first time. And so no one is ever to hold a struggling, weak, immature, frail believer in contempt. Because their angels behold the face of the Father. Because the Son came to save them. Because he rejoices over their repentance. Because the Father is having his way in their lives. As we bring this home, I think we could honestly say that our own sin natures tend to make us jealous toward some. And dismissive toward others. When you go into pastoral ministry... You're trained from two different sources of material. You're trained from the the materials and the writings of dead people. That's okay. But then you're trained from the writings and the teachings and the sources and materials from people who are alive. I don't know how many people Jonathan Edwards pastored. I don't know how many people John Owen pastored. But I know that MacArthur's up in the, the, the high thousands, single digits. It might even be over 10,000 now. And in the evangelical world, if you haven't noticed it, if you happen to listen to Christian radio, bot radio, and you listen to those teachers, these guys are writing books. Some of them are on TV. And within the whole evangelical world, the idea is if you're a successful pastor, you've got a big church. That's simply what's presented. If somebody is interviewed about 30 years in ministry, it's not 30 years in ministry at a church of 50. And so within that whole world for for many pastors, and this was true for me for for a lengthy period of time, you're jealous of those who are in a bigger position. And I think for those who are in, in bigger positions, it's easy to become dismissive of those who are in smaller churches. The, the events of the last decade in my life have, have kind of broken me free. I'm content with who is here. Now, we can be dismissive of those we think are beneath us as Christians, and we can be jealous of those we think are ahead of us as Christians, we, and we must not be. That's the same sin, by the way. Seen from the bottom, that sin is called jealousy. Seen from the top, that sin is called contempt. But it's the same sin that says, I'm not content with who I am in Christ. It's a lack of contentment. We can encounter a lot of stumbling blocks in this world, but here are two. We can be tempted to, to despise those who are weak and frail and give in to temptation. We can forget that stumbling blocks fill our world and that we are prone to sin. We are prone to stumble in many ways, James says. When somebody around us has failed and we haven't failed, it's easy to kind of tighten our tie a little bit and say, yeah, but I didn't do that. And we have to remember that Jesus came to atone for them. That he has not given up on them. That we must not hold them in contempt And we can be tempted also to think that we are responsible to restore straying believers. But the Lord doesn't send the 99. He's not talking about evangelism. He goes to restore. Now, we have a minor part sometimes in that restoration. It is always right to pray. Sometimes it's right to speak. We're going to see that in the the passage next week. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone, private. And you know what? If he repents, you're done. And Jesus goes on to give detailed instructions there and elsewhere in scripture about sinning Christians. He has given us the instructions about how to deal with somebody else so we don't have to make it up on our own. But we must not think that the responsibility of restoring that one is up to us. Our responsibility is following his instructions, following what he has said in his word. He always takes the responsibility through his spirit and through his word of restoring those who fall. Their best hope is that we faithfully obey his word. And sometimes in serious sins, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, some people are so immersed in a, in a major sin and refuse to repent that his instruction is that we give them over. We remove them from the fellowship and we give them over to the devil. But Paul says we give them, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. How does that work? Well, Satan is not secretly on our team. It's because God uses the devil surgically. And Jesus isn't afraid of that sin or your sin. He died for that sin. He's not afraid of it. And sometimes the only way to restore a sinning believer is to remove them, A, from the noise around them that they can kind of get lost in, And B from the crowd of of younger, more more immature believers than them that let allow them to pretend I'm okay, I'm doing okay. And it's in that isolation that the devil is allowed a clear shot at them, and the Lord Jesus uses that surgically to restore them. And then in 2 Corinthians, when they're restored, when they have repented, when they have confessed, we welcome them back and we're done. There's no punishment. There's no retaliation. They don't owe us anything. There's no restitution. We're we're done. Because he is one. Uh, So family, we ought to rejoice in the unchanging purpose of God. Because he never changes, our salvation is never in doubt. Because he never changes, he continually sanctifies us and grows us in Christ. Because he never changes, he will always restore us in Christ. And because he never changes, we're free to view others, whoever they are, with grace and mercy and joy. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you for your devotion to our redemption. There is not a moment of eternity when we are more committed to our salvation than you are. It is your constant purpose in our lives. And we can forget about sanctification for days or weeks. But your spirit never stops the process of transforming us. And he never stops the process of transforming those around us. Would you help us to look upon those that you are working on with kindness and with grace and with mercy and with humility? Knowing that the same Spirit is working on us. The same Word speaks to us. The same Savior has given his life for us. That we would be a people, Lord, who speak the truth and love. And that both of those elements would be there. We don't use the truth as a weapon. But neither do we pretend as though though love by itself can accomplish anything. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Grant us your joy this week. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.